This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, In That Time, In That Place, The Monomyth and Other Storytelling Modes. Okay, so um, after our recent delve into uh, narrative silliness, let's call it, uh, <laughs> we are back today with a slightly more sober and sensible episode on story structure, which is a tongue twister. Sober, sensible episode on story <laughs> structure. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, we all know that I'm an absolute bear for structure, and I go a bit peculiar if I don't get to talk about it regularly so there is that as well yeah, yeah. and by peculiar, good to my mental health she literally does transform into a bear and she will maul you don't tell them that <laughs> you're a werebear, a werebear. Um, <laughs> now we've talked about structure um, and how to structure a story or a book before um, quite a few times um, and obviously we've also sounded out the hero's journey uh, pretty thoroughly as well as looking at the heroine's journey However, um, useful as it is to look at these popular storytelling modes, uh, there is a very Western-centric view, basically. It, it, it is a very Western-centric view of narrative fiction. Yeah, and we're all for stretching understanding and increasing stores of knowledge. So even if you've never intended to utilise other storytelling modes, it can't hurt to learn about them, right? Right. So uh, before we kind of delve in, uh, let's do a little bit of a recap. So we're going to start off with just doing a very quick recap of the hero's journey or the monomyth. Yeah. Uh, now, um, in narratology and comparative mythology, the hero's journey is the common template for stories which involve a hero who goes on a journey or a quest, is victorious in a decisive crisis, and returns home changed or transformed. Yeah, it's also come to be called the monomyth on the understanding that it's the only real mode of storytelling, which is obviously somewhat erroneous. Yeah. Now, in 1949, a guy called Joseph Campbell, who was very heavily, heavily, heavily influenced, um, he was very heavily influenced. I almost said heavenly influenced. <laughs> Where are we going? Um, he was very influenced by Carl Jung. He used the monomyth to compare and analyse religions. Um, he wrote a very famous book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, basically which describes the narrative pattern as follows. Essentially, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder or the other world. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero then comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Um, it's a kind of uh, sort of cocoon journey where you go out, you change and you come back as someone new and more wonderful for the embetterment of everybody. Yeah. Now, Campbell's work has been subject has been the subject, rather, of a lot of well-deserved criticism. Uh, folklorists in particular have pointed out that his knowledge of folklore and the narrative forms um, employed by folktales was minimal at best. It really wasn't his area of expertise. So making this sweeping generalisation that it fit all story forms was uh, a bit naive, to say the least. Yeah. Now, while his work does still have value, uh, the work shows clear confirmation and source selection bias, which we can't ignore. No, I mean, he obviously went out and said, well, this is my theory. I'm going to look for evidence that supports the theory rather than this is my theory. I'm going to look at all the evidence and see whether my theory holds water. I mean, it's an easy trap to fall into for anyone, to be honest. But yeah, um, unfortunately, he, he did fall into it quite thoroughly in some respects. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that monomyth is not the only way to tell a story at all. Um, and the fact that it, it is so kind of prominent, I think, just goes towards pointing that the structure is a way to tell a story which is very pleasing. 
um, yeah. and which makes kind of sense to us in a way that it hits all the beats and points that we tend to want in a story. However, it is not the only way of telling a story and certainly not the only way of telling a pleasing story, but it is a very, very useful tool. Um, so we're going to delve very quickly into how the monomyth works. Uh, essentially, it's broken down into a three-act structure, each of which are further subdivided by actions um, and articles which will occur within that act. Yeah. Now, not all stories um, employ all of these articles, or if they do, they may not strictly adhere to the order presented here. Uh, it depends on genre, among other things. Uh, romance, for example, usually skips a few stages and adapts certain others. Now, we'll run through the structure, but we're not going to go into too much detail due to time constraints. Um, if you do want to know more about it, you can check out our episodes about the monomyth. Um, and obviously, there are also a lot of books on this. Um, and, you know, if you if the books, the YouTube videos, um, our episodes <laughs> and stuff like that, uh, don't kind of scratch uh, that particular itch, you can always get in contact with us with specific questions, you know, we're very happy to answer that. Uh, also, please note that other sources will have different names for each of these stages, or they may divide things into a five-act structure. Um, you might also find that uh, the hero's journey is changed from having kind of like 16 to 12, it will depend. Um, but it's all essentially following the monomyth template, so let's get into that. Yeah, so Act 1 uh, is generally referred to as departure. Hmm. Um, the first article, if you like, or action is the call to adventure. So this is the inciting incident, the point where the hero basically gets the, basically gets the call to move from their common everyday life into something a bit more fantastical. Yeah. Uh, to use an example, um, I'm going to use uh, Moana because it's always the easiest one because it follows the structure so spectacularly. It does. <laughs> well, essentially, uh, Moana's living her everyday life and then suddenly the blight hits the island. Yeah. Uh, you then get the refusal of the call. Um, now, this can sometimes be a big part of the story or it can be a small part, but essentially something stops the hero from initially answering the call. Usually that is something within them. Perhaps they don't want to answer it. Perhaps they're conflicted, but sometimes it can be uh, an external factor is preventing them from answering the call. So in the case, again, of Moana, she tries to leave the reef. Uh, she doesn't manage because she doesn't have the skills or the right boat for it. Um, and also her father is trying to prevent her from leaving. Yeah, that action is then followed by supernatural aid. So something turns up that is outside common experience to aid the hero in getting over that refusal of the call. So if we've got a reluctant hero who's kind of like, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with this magic ship, then someone will turn up and say, no, no, you absolutely have to, or this will happen to you or your family, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes it could also be, again, let's use Moana as an example, she physically couldn't cross the sort of the, the barrier in order to get into the open seas, but she is then given a boat um, and her grandmother, when her grandmother dies, her grandmother's spirit actually creates a way open for Moana to be able to leave the reef. Um, this is obviously not an everyday occurrence, that doesn't happen usually, so it is kind of supernatural aid. Um, and following on from that we get the crossing the threshold. So um, <laughs> something that always kind of makes me really think of this is in sort of Lord of the Rings where it's just they're like this is it, one more step and I'll be the furthest away from home I've ever been. Yeah, it um, can be that simple, it can be yeah. this single step or it can be sort of like I'm now on the high seas like Moana. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is kind of the moment where uh, you are kind of switching over. There's no sort of between space. There is a border and it, and you have crossed it and you are now in another world. Uh, so again, as we said, in the case of Moana, uh, she is literally now in the open sea. She is n nowhere she's ever been before. Uh, this is followed by the belly of the whale. Obviously, this is taken from... <laughs> the whole biblical story of Jonah and the whale. This is kind of a time of testing in the sense of the hero finds themselves completely outside of their realm of experience. 
and it might be something quite simple or it can literally be you're inside the belly of a whale or monster or something yeah um this is kind of a big transformative moment and it's one of the things which really highlights the fact that this is this is going to be a hero because essentially this is the kind of the first hurdle that people would fail at so having crossed into this new world they then encounter the realities of the new world and it hits them hard Um, moana is again perfect example she's hit by this terrible storm so you know up until now everything's been fine except now she's on the open water and there is you know this kind of not a hurricane but you know like there's a tempest um which kind of batters and blows her uh, and and she barely survives it, it is a, it's a trial by fire and the fact that she survives it is a big part of essentially the first step she needs to take in order to be able to complete the rest of the journey yeah uh, that brings us to act two which is generally called initiation yeah now uh this is a tricky one because there's something called the road of trials and this is where the hero's journey can get a bit muddy because the road of trials can actually be a huge section um yeah. and it can involve think lord of the rings again yeah, think lord of the rings again it can involve uh, you know this can really be where some things tend to happen in threes um so the road of trials is as it sounds like this kind of things are not simple you know they've now crossed into it they've kind of found their their sort of step but problems are going to arise and that each one is going to be bigger than the last one moana again perfect example of how it works in threes in that you essentially get her basically first of all having to you know sort of work with um maui and they have to defeat the the kaki uh, the uh, the Kikimora, I think it is. Yeah, um, that's and right. And then they have to go and get the hook back from Tamatoa. And then, and this is a really important one, there is an emotional trial where essentially she has to basically connect with Maui and give him his confidence back. So we get those kind of those three trials where different things end up being tested um, and the hero has to overcome them and usually during the road of trial the hero ends up kind of getting new friends making alliances kind of building their their arsenal as it were yeah uh the next action after this is the meeting with the goddess um this is kind of a tricky one to define generally it doesn't necessarily need to be an external force that this can literally be the hero meeting an aspect of their own personality they hadn't really considered or encountered before but it shows the growing transformation within the hero um, if you want an example you can take uh, from the more medieval cycle um, from the more for example mm-hmm. where you've got galahad questing for the gra- grail the grail the grail the, the, the quail he's questing the quail. for quail <laughs> that would be a completely <laughs> different story so he's looking for quail and um, he meets the abbess of the pathway who is clearly a vaguely supernatural figure but loosely affiliated with the christian religion yeah um again potentially a goddess type figure and sort of sets him on the right path so again, it's this recognition of something within themselves that makes them take a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, it can also be tied basically with receiving another bout of gifts. So you can kind of have this mentorish sort of figure that comes into it as well. Um, and again, even though it's called meeting with the goddess, it doesn't need to involve a woman or have to be a woman or involve any other anyone else at all galadriel the the team meeting up with galadriel is another perfect example of that literally coming to pass um but in the case of moana um meeting with the goddess is actually a very simple moment where essentially she learns how to be a wayfinder yeah maui teaches her and there is this wonderful kind of moment just before they kind of head into battle where maui basically says to her um he understands why the ocean chose her and it's such a small but it's a significant moment where we see there's kind of been a moment of rest and a moment of growth where a where a boon a gift something has happened and there again has been that very positive change um it is then countered with something called woman as temptation and again just remove gender from this entirely um i think this is very typical it's like and then a woman arrives and she tries to tempt him away uh (laughs) as we do (laughs) yeah not necessarily the case but essentially what happens is that the hero is then met with a form of temptation 
and uh, again without going into too much detail usually this speaks to the weakest part of them the, the part which they're really battling um, where essentially their goals are kind of divided they want something personally and they are tempted away now that can be something superficial of there's the temptation of gold there's the temptation of kind of distraction or uh, or um, you leave the revolution we've got your your woman here as hostage or something like that and it's the temptation of love over the the greater good um again in moana you get actually see this in that moana is so focused on kind of actually getting things complete and getting things done she refuses to listen to maui um and what happens is that they are heading in towards takar um, and Moana thinks she can see a way in, and Maui is telling her no. Uh, telling her that they can't make it, that they need to retreat. But she's too tempted, basically, by what looks like an opening. Um, that she stops, she basically stops heeding what other people are saying. Um, she basically takes action with her own hands without actually thinking of the wider picture. And there are terrible consequences because of that. Yeah. Um, this is followed by, again, we've got the 1949 very gendered language of atonement with the father. Um, can, like the meeting with the goddess, be a difficult one to define? It can be entirely internal in the sense of the character recognises a flaw within themselves that needs correcting. Hmm. Generally, it's in reaction to the either following the temptation or being tempted in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, thinking about... Uh, Okay, different example, Wardship Down, mm -hmm. where the rabbits are obviously trying to find somewhere to live. And if you like, Wardship Down is kind of two stories. How do you get there? And also then how do you make a success of it once you've got there? So mm -hmm. in the how do you get there section, they get led astray, if you like, by cowslip on the way. Um, he wants them, unknowing and unaware of the dangers in the area, to join the, the large warren where a man is putting out root vegetables and things to keep the rabbits in the area, to keep them happy, so that he can snare the area and take a couple of rabbits whenever he fancies. Mm. And of course, Hazel and the others don't realise that the wire is there. Fiverr knows something's wrong. Um, and he's saying, no, we, we need to avoid this temptation. We need to keep going. It doesn't matter how hard it is, we need to keep going. But everyone else is tired, they're worn out, they're bedraggled, and they're really hungry. Yeah. And they stay and they very nearly lose bigwig over it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the atonement part would obviously be that Bigwig survives the, the snare mm. and they confront Cowslip and they keep going and they're stronger than before for having been tempted. Yeah, absolutely. The father, I tend to kind of see it as the thing which has the most influence in the character's life at that moment. And that can yeah. be a figure or it can be, you know, the chip within them, the fault within them. Um, but essentially it's them kind of facing themselves. Again, with Moana, she kind of has this moment where she has the big thing within her is that she's always felt divided, you know, and that she's felt her desire for the sea is a kind of betrayal to her family. Um, that and that they were they were right that she shouldn't be out at sea, that she can't do this, that she has fabricated this whole idea of a destiny. Um, because, you know, really all she is and all she can ever be is someone who belongs on the island. And this is then followed by something called um, the apotheosis, um, or the descent into the underworld slash the point of ritual death. Now that sounds very, very grand, <laughs> but essentially it's a moment of metamorphosis, where essentially having faced this the, the the father as it was having faced the moment you know their biggest kind of the flaw the thing that has the most control over them they then basically let it go um and they they put to rest the part of them that was so influenced by that they make their peace with it um and essentially it is a butterfly thing where the caterpillar dies liquefies and then emerges as a um you know as a butterfly from uh, the goo state from, yeah now in the case of moana this is um, this is again you really see this visually where essentially she 
suddenly the way that she faces it is by saying, actually, who am I? And when she really looks at herself, she realises that she doesn't need to think of herself as one or the other and one betraying the other. She is all of these things. And that, you know, she's doubting herself, but the reality is she was chosen and she was chosen for this reason. And actually, she can do this because she is absolutely the right person to do it. There's no betrayal. There's no kind of, I have to be one person or the other. She ca she just has to be herself. Yeah. Um, and it's this great moment of connection where she puts to rest that fear that she had. Okay, so at that point we get into the third act. Um, yeah. And the third act is commonly referred to as the return. Yeah, this kind of starts off with the ultimate boon. So having gone through this point of ritual death, um, where you die to your old self, mm -hmm. you then gain a great gift as a consequence. This can be in the form of supernatural aid or mm -hmm. an outside influence, or it can simply be, as in Moana's case, recognising an essential truth that is incredibly valuable within yourself. Yeah. Um, now, depending on how kind of the story works, um, and this is one of the interesting things, obviously, with the monomyth, is that it is internal and external. Sometimes the ultimate boon can actually be the character achieving what they initially set out to do. So in the case, it could be that internally Moana realising who she is, that could be the ultimate boon. But it could also be that she then sets out and she achieves her goal of returning the heart, the heart of Tefiti. And this is why the monomyth is a little bit iffy, because <laughs> it could be either of those things. Yeah. Um, after the ultimate boon, after they've achieved the ultimate boon, um, you then have the refusal of the return. Now, this is a really interesting one, because essentially what's happened is that the, the hero is now at the absolute height of kind of 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 this new world. They are they're you know, the best possible selves. They've gone into absolute God mode. And there is a moment where they do not want to step down they don't want to turn around and return to the normal world. It's the complete antithesis of the refusal of the call. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this can be a big thing um, or it can be a small thing. Um, so again, I'm going to use Moana. This, there's a very, very small bit in Moana where essentially the refusal of the return doesn't actually come in terms of her saying, I don't want to go home. It's that she wants Maui to come with her. Essentially, she wants to bring the other world with her. She doesn't want to let go of the other world yet. Um, and he says no. And she kind of has to accept that. Yeah. Um, after that, you get the magic flight. Now, let's assume the ultimate boon was a physical thing that was maybe an item jealously guarded by the gods. Mm -hmm. The hero now has to really hair ass it out of there yeah. um, with almost supernatural speed. So uh, a good example, although you might find the actual storytelling a bit weak, is whenever Indiana Jones takes something from a temple. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But certainly when you think of things like... Um, I want to say the Temple of Doom. I don't think it is the Temple of Doom. But the but eagles. He's take, yeah, he's, take, he's taking something yeah. that is obviously been booby-trapped and there's obviously a cult guarding it or what have you. And he is having to really leg it, even though he has no supernatural aid as such. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think they literally have done it in... Yeah, it's a lot of thriller things and Indiana Jones, which is we've achieved our goal. We found the temple, but now the temple is imploding and we need to get out before it, you know, before it crumbles. Um, another example would be literal magic flight, which is uh, obviously the eagles coming <laughs> in <laughs> um, at the end of um, Return of the King. Yeah. Um, this is then followed by something called Rescue from Without. Um, I do think that uh, Campbell was just being pretentious with some of these naming things, to be honest. Yes. Um, just trying to be really un as unclear as possible. Um, <laughs> but essentially, kind of, just as with the magic flight, um, where they might have needed sort of some help, kind of with a supernatural thing, there is a moment where 
the you know they might need a little bit of healing up they might need a bit of a step you know following their journey they need a little bit of you know aid with kind of getting by and the magic flight and rescue from without can sometimes be combined um, which i think you see perfectly in the term of moana where obviously to get home her boat has been destroyed in, in all of the in all of the ruckus and yeah. tefiti creates a new boat for her filled with food and stuff like that yeah then we get the crossing the return threshold so the hero has undergone this huge transformational process um, they have been if you were like voyaging in the underworld mm-hmm. or voyaging in the outer reaches of space and now they're reapproaching earth or they're reapproaching the land of the living again and it is that point of crossing back to the common everyday world but with the recognition ideally that both worlds are of equal significance to them personally yeah um this is you know this can be quite a sort of an epic moment and we do see it a lot kind of in fantasy where you know someone went left as a sort of a poor farmhand with everyone mocking them and then they return with jewels and on a on a horse and the princess and all that jazz i love the bit in stardust i was just thinking of stardust it is specifically and he comes back um to the woman he thought he wanted to marry and then realises that he's actually grown up a lot and become a different person um, hands her the lock of hair yeah, and uh, it, it's the whole the people who are bullying him are about to attack him again and he absolutely knocks them senseless it's brilliant, he's yeah. not the same guy Fun fact, the actor who's doing the one who's the, the bully, is that's Henry Cavill, and I can never unsee know, that now so, that I remember. I know, it's so weird, isn't it? It's just like Superman <laughs> trying to beat up Daredevil, it's a bit weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is then followed by something called Master of Two Worlds, um, and this is very much what's happened is that the hero has brought the skills of the other world um and now kind of has introduced them into this, into let's call it sort of like the mundane world and the other world. Um, They introduce it into the mundane world and they are masters of the two now. They can, they have mastered the the other world. They are master in this world and all of the information they have brought back is now gonna be to the benefit of everybody. And again, Moana, perfect example of this in that she has learned to be a wayfinder. She has learned kind of the ways of the water and stuff like that. and now she is stepping up as chief and she is going to teach her people their heritage yeah definitely and this is the final conclusion is the freedom to live so generally with a hero's journey because a lot of it it is external and physical they have come back um, changed in a way that means they can impart wisdom to others who might begin their own hero's journeys but also Mm -hmm. um they can affect the world around them. They can move through it more fi- more freely. So again, the whole farm boy to Jedi kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and usually this is shown in the case of Freedom to Live with basically the hero assuming some kind of position of authority. Again, Stardust, perfect example. He literally, he becomes king and she becomes queen. Um, and in the case of Moana, you see her basically becoming this this chief. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the hero's journey. Um, now, a quick run through of the heroine's journey. And it's worth noticing, noticing, noting even at this point that the gender of the hero is irrelevant. Yeah. The point is that it's an external story, generally, where a character strives physically and from that struggle they win freedom and power enough to alter the world they previously lived in, even in small ways. Yeah. Now the heroine's journey is similar in some ways, but also an inverse of the hero's journey, uh, because it's actually far more concerned with the internal journey. Yeah. The main character will struggle and strive and the result will be emotional and psychological development over physical development. Yeah, though of course the physical development can also be a part of that. Yeah. Additionally, the hero starts from a position of comparative power where help is readily available to him or her. Uh, sorry, no, sorry. I mean, sorry, the hero in the in the hero's journey 
tends to start from a position of comparative power where help is readily available to him if he knows where to look uh, because the world is set up for people like him, even if he is an underdog. Whereas the heroine tends to start uh, from a position of comparative powerlessness. The world is not set up for her and um, help is not readily available. One way of really understanding it is that essentially the the hero of the hero's journey tends to be someone who is dreaming about going out into the big wide world and they want to they want to get out they want to do something like that whereas the heroine and i'm just going to use gendered language just to keep it clear the heroine tends to be someone who is desperately trying to fit into the regular world because they don't fit um if we think of moana as a perfect example of the hero's journey mulan is um and i'll use the disney version mulan is a perfect example of the heroine's journey yeah absolutely Um, By the end of the story, the heroine doesn't complete the return as a victor and mentor. Her victory tends to be quieter. She's found a way to succeed and triumph within the confines of the existing world. So while she may have claimed her own power and agency, she's not able to fundamentally change the world that oppresses people like her. Yeah. Again, uh, you know, we can have it that she's had a massive success and things like that, but ultimately the world won't shift just because of her but actually it doesn't matter because she knows where she is and hopefully she's also surrounded by people who appreciate her and again we do see that in the case of Mulan who ultimately at the end of the story returns home um, yeah. where she is shown appreciation and it's not going to necessarily change the way that all women are treated um, but it has made a difference for her and she knows where she belongs yeah. Um, anyway, this is essentially the plot of a Bildung's Remain, or a learning tale. Um, it's concerned with the psychological and moral growth of the main character. Yeah. An excellent example, um, as well as Mulan, uh, is yeah. Jane Eyre, uh, where the main character lives in a world where the rights of women are very restricted. Now, within that world, Jane strives and struggles internally until she has the strength to be true to herself no matter what. She claims her own power and agency, and she eventually triumphs because of it. But she doesn't come back from St. John's River House and eradicate sexism in Victorian Britain. She carves her own space. Yeah. Another example, surprisingly, is Captain Marvel, where the main character struggles most internally. I mean, it is quite a physical story because it's Marvel, but at the same time, it's also a quiet story about personal growth and believing in yourself. Yeah. Um, she claims her power but doesn't rebalance the entire universe because that's out of her hands yeah um, but she basically starts to make movements towards it yeah now the heroine's journey is as old as the hero's journey as a kind of a template um, in terms of when it was sort of first published it's kind of they're relatively sort of similar but it's it's important to recognize that it's a contemporary narrative form not an offshoot um it's it just happened to get overlooked by a lot of male scholars essentially during the time definitely and the other thing is you can have both stories both templates working together in varying degrees in the same story yeah both are still technically western storytelling modes however yes so what about the rest of the world okay so Let's start with the Scandinavian mode. Now, unlike Western storytelling modes like the hero's journey, the Scandinavian narrative mode does not privilege a single main character as the unifying element in a story. That's really crucial. Yeah. Instead, three or four protagonists, or sometimes more depending on how big the story is, are employed, each having their own arc with a beginning, middle and end. While that merely sounds like a multi-cast story, it's the order of appearance that makes the difference. These characters may die before the story begins, pop in and out of the narrative as required, actively work against it and yet still be protagonist, not antagonist, or be born almost at the end of the story. The unifying element is usually a single ritual truth which acts as a red thread through the entire narrative. Yeah, and if you're having trouble following that idea, and I can understand why, because we are all sort of like hero's journey all the time, Mm -hmm. um, 
Think of Beowulf. If you read the epic, you'll see that the titular character actually is no more a main character than about four or five other people who are all equally important to imparting the ritual truth that humans are corruptible, but they are also redeemable, even if temptation is eternal. Yeah. Uh, the strongest character isn't necessarily the main character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, another example is the admittedly fractured collection of Norse myths. Now, while we should consider that those myths don't all date back to the same time period or place, and that we have actually lost a lot, the reason we don't always understand the implications in them is because they follow this Scandinavian storytelling mode. The characters are actually really the point, the truth that they portray is. Ergo, everyone can act in appalling ways and still be heroic in saga terms. Um, the Irish sagas also employ some of this, and we also see elements of it very much appearing within folklore and sort of spinning tale structures, where, you know, you can have several main characters, but it's the larger narrative which is kind of the the biggest point, as it were. Yeah, it's the essential truth. I mean, if you want some more modern examples which lean into this mode at least a little, mm -hmm. um, you can look at things like Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, where the the real essential truth from that book is the question, who is God? Yeah. And the answer is, God is love. And it doesn't matter. It's basically to love another person is to see the face of God. That is, that is the essential truth running through that narrative. The cast is humongous. And you don't get a beginning, middle and end on every single character's arc. But they're, once they're on, on screen or on page, they are the most important character for that section that they're on, they're on page. Yeah. And it, we're not being told that this will... I mean, you could say, yeah, Jean Valjean is the hero. And he is the hero in the sense of he's kind of a unifying force, but actually he's more upon a personification of this truth that without love... Um, doesn't have to be romantic love but without love for your fellow human beings without this sense of being a person as part of a group then nothing else really has a great deal of worth yeah an even more modern uh, version to a certain extent would be george r, r. martin's a song of ice and fire yeah and i would say the essential truth there is who can be trusted with power yeah, absolutely. And it is this kind of this wide narrative about what does the world actually look like? Um, and, you know, what what is power and who can be trusted with it, as you say, yeah. um, with multiple points of view and different times and people just dying off without necessarily having achieved certain things. Um, and I think it's probably also why, and we've talked about a Song of Ice and Fire and the Game of Thrones series a lot, so we're not going to kind of go into it too much. But I think it's why a lot of people were very dissatisfied with the way that the series ended, and Jules and I have similarly critiqued that, so we're not going to go into it. But it very much, people wanted more of the Western kind of build up the hero's journey sort of ending and it very much followed more of the Scandinavian mode, which is that events follow events essentially. Yeah, it didn't really do the call and response. Here is the essential truth in question form. Here is the potential answer. What do you think? Yeah. Um, so I think that was part of the issue as well. But yeah, people pick up, people pick up on all these things without necessarily knowing the terminology because I think we've got this inbuilt thing where we recognise story. Yeah. Completely agreed. Okay, let's hop over now uh, to the Indian narrative form. Yeah, this is radically different from any Western European form. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're not sure what I mean, check out a Bollywood movie. So one moment it's a romance, then it's a thriller, then it's a dance movie or a musical, then it's sci-fi, and then it's a mythological epic. Yeah. Uh, now, Western audiences often find this hard to get their heads around, but it's actually perfectly normal uh, to an Indian audience who expect a story to jump genres um, and be non-linear and have a complexity that dances between these kinds of themes. Yeah, it, the, the, it, this sort of comes out of the Hindi storytelling mode where the beginning and the unifying point is a religious or spiritual ritual invocation that establishes the emotive spiritual feeling for what follows. 
i.e. this is what we are here to be taught. Now, if you've read things like the Mahabharata or the uh, Ramayana, the, in, the sort of Hindu epic poetry, and let's be honest here, my Hindi is non-existent, so I've obviously read translations and I cannot vouch 100% that the translations really captured the spirit because yeah. translating something does, to a certain extent, destroy some of its original meaning. Yes. But you can at least get the flavour of the fact that it, it is kind of that Scandinavian call and response and then some, as in it doesn't matter what happens, anything could happen in between the, the call and the response, if you like. Yeah, um, and it's also why, you know, you get a lot of sort of uh, Hindi epics and stuff like that, which cross generations, you know, thousands of years, because the characters themselves aren't really the most important part in that. It's that wider call and response that that wider question and answer yeah um now the ensuing narrative basically branches like a tree um and it tends to have multiple viewpoints which it may or may not follow all the way through a beginning middle and end arc um and tends to dip in and out of genre convention character arc and style as it suits the story yeah, it can be very pick and mix, and if you're used to the hero's journey and the Western mindset of enjoying story, it it can be a bit of a head spinner to start with. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Um, now, the end of the story is a re-establishment of that original religious or spiritual ritual invocation. This is what we have learned in response to this is what we are here to be taught. Mm -hmm. um, it, this provides the closure, even if the character's own journeys are unfinished. Yeah. Now, in this kind of way, every ending is the beginning of a new story. Yeah, and again, examples, the Maharabhata, I'm not saying that right, I'm tangling over something, I'm really sorry guys, I'm pretty sure you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, the Ramayana, which is the epic poet, poem, and you know, there are various modern interpretations of this. Some of them are clearly geared more towards a Western audience and kind mm -hmm. of have hero's journey structure overlaid over the top some of them don't and it's always worth having a look and dipping into these because you will get the flavor um a film that i think kind of does lean into this indian structure is slumdog millionaire have you ever seen that one yes i have yeah absolutely and it's like it's kind of a a very poor boy makes good cinderella story and then at another point it's a thriller and then it's kind of gang warfare and then it's back to feel good hero's journey and okay i don't think they've really got a dance number in there but it does kind of manage to follow that indian storytelling mode yeah i completely agree now of course it's important to remember that this is a storytelling mode um so you might be listening to this and just being like okay yeah but i've seen a bollywood movie um and i think they were just you know trying to have some fun yeah we're not saying that that's not the case people can take the hero's journey and and make something silly or, or make something which isn't silly we're, but we're pointing out the fact that certain story modes which are very present within the story structures are in certain cultures will affect how stories are then produced um and they will differ and they have differed <laughs> so yeah. bear that in mind Okay, let's have a look at the West African narrative modes. Yes. So, unlike other storytelling modes, West African narrative forms privilege environment or context over the protagonist. The social context is far more important than the individual context. Yeah. Now, in other words, the stable, unifying plot elements often have nothing to do with the character, which is very different from the hero's journey. The theme and the interrelating elements are essentially what hold the story together. Um, and that, again, if you if you cut your teeth on the hero's journey, and that's generally what you consume, it can mm -hmm. sound very confusing. So consider it like this. The defined context of a, of a story is the savannah and a small village on the edge of it. That scene will not change because that is the context, the setting and the theme of the story. Any characters will enter and exit as if it's a stage set. They are temporary and they are unimportant. The place is what matters. 
Now, sometimes we can actually see elements of this um, appearing in other kind of story forms. We might think of them almost as sort of anthologies. Uh, for example, you could say Under Milkwood almost kind of plays into that idea. Yeah. Um, similarly, uh, James Joyce's The Dubliners, where it's these number of contained stories, but the big, big overarching important thing is that that links it all together is that it's all set in Dublin during a particular time, essentially. Yeah, every pretty much everything Edward Rutherford writes, he basically writes historical non-fiction, but in a fiction format, and you get the history of a place through this portmanteau-type storytelling where the characters, again, come in and go out. Um, he's written about Russia, China, Ireland, London... <laughs> And, yeah. and you kind of get almost a thousand years within a book, um, yeah. but with short little little portmanteau stories. Yeah, with the focus being on the setting or the particular place. Um, and that can, this is, I think, used a lot by political writers. So certainly I think, you know, James Joyce is doing all these things and he's, it's a political narrative. Yeah, definitely. You know. Um, so... This has not come out of uh, the theatre tradition either, I should just say. So we might think of, oh, it's just a sage set and people are coming on and off it. But actually, um, it's not that. Um, it's actually a reflection of a society who lived close to the land and didn't consider, sorry, didn't consider this, themselves the most important creatures on it. So essentially, caretakers, not masters. Yeah. So what a character does and who they are is far less important than what effect they will have on that place. Yeah, and in storytelling modes, essentially it's the what does a character's moment and actions tell us about that place? Yeah. Rather than what does the character's motions and actions tell us about the character? That doesn't, that's less important. Yeah. Um, so... The mentality has survived um, in the West African storytelling tradition, uh, both in oral tales and uh, in indigenous films as well. Which I think is why some people find watching indigenous culture type films a bit challenging, because again, it's employing this, the place is the important thing, not the characters. And you're like, well, what happened to Joe who turned up in the first scene and hasn't been seen again kind of thing? Yeah. Um, essentially, it comes down to humans are temporary, the world is eternal. Therefore, it is the land which defines the place and action of the story. And again, that has been used not just to mean the physical land, but also the social climate as well. Yeah. Which takes us on to our fourth broad alternate storytelling form, which is the the autochthonous narrative form. I hope I've said that right. I've never <laughs> seen that said out loud. No. <laughs> um, so full disclosure, this is a form I know the least about. So I welcome correction from people who know more than I do. Yeah, same. Uh, now, I so, know so little about it that I'm terrified of even trying to say the word. It's one of those ones where you read it, but you don't you don't say it out loud. Uh, the autochthonous uh, people are those native to the place they live rather than merely being born there um, or they are um, engendered to the place that they live. Yeah. Now, many Hollywood films are all story and very little plot. Uh, by contrast, autochthonous narratives are all plot and no story. <laughs> plot points are offered, but they are presented completely neutrally, and it is up to the listener to provide the interpretation of the story, or indeed the story at all, over those plot points. Now, that might be blowing your mind, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but essentially, the prime purpose appears to be to equip the listener with the tools to recognise signs and interpret them, and to essentially create their own stories from these signs, rather than to provide direct lessons or entertainment. Yeah, these types of narratives tend to be found with in African tribes or Aboriginal groups. Yeah. Now, while a lot of Western audiences might find them unsatisfying, the point is that the story is created by the listener. Um, there is no, sorry, um, there is no real storytelling, as it were, and the whole experience is educational and interactive. And actually, elements of it are used sometimes 
um, not in total, but parts of it are used in certain forms of theatre, for example, um, where essentially the audience are presented with a series of kind of events and nothing is geared towards telling them what the truth is where essentially everything is going to be down to their interpretation. Um, and I do remember, essentially, I read a script for one play which kind of utilised a little bit of this. It wasn't fully this, but it utilised a little bit, where essentially it was portraying um, a, a very successful teacher, um, a, a professor at a university or something like that, and a student who was having a lot of trouble. And the teacher basically offered them a little bit of extra help. and kind of the things that sort of unfurled was this whole question of whether he was being inappropriate, whether he was being genuinely actually, you know, helpful. He, there was nothing malicious, There was he wasn't trying to sort of push her into a sexual relationship or anything like that, or whether he was actually trying to take advantage of her. Yeah. And nothing was given absolutely nothing was given so there was no explicit scene or anything like that it was pretty much only conversation um and kind of at the end it was this whole sort of thing where people in the room would be totally divided because one would say yeah no absolutely you can clearly see that he's trying to use his position and that he was you know sexually harassing her and other people in the room are, are saying what the hell are you talking about she was clearly you know, using this in order to kind of get him discredited so that she could pass this class or something. Um, and so it is actually something which is utilised a little bit, but only in certain forms of storytelling um, and often in conjunction with other forms of more kind of, I will say, Western friendly storytelling, Western friendly being things that we're more familiar with. Yeah, I mean, you see a little bit in, in things like the Laura Gavler, and which is, you know, the book of the taking of Ireland, which is yeah. kind of a fictitious history, um, which weirdly does bear some resemblance to what we now know of the genetic heritage of Irish people, yeah. <laughs> where you have various waves of um, invasion, for lack of a better word. Yeah. It, it's kind of like a call and response start, which is who were the first folk in the land of Erin, the Fearbulg, the Bagmen, etc. And it sort of goes on down through... Um, almost like the, the listing of the lineages in the Bible. Again, those aren't a list of plot points, but the way it's presented, where it's like, here are the plot points, uh, you decide what story that is. It's a, a join-the-dot thing for storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Is it a dog? Is it a star kind of thing? Yeah. So, let's summarise. <laughs> Essentially, narrative forms are not really fixed no matter what mr campbell tries to tell us no and they generally i mean depending on things like continental drift yeah. um they do like to borrow and steal and exchange points with each other as well so you you're very unlikely to get any sort of narrative form that hasn't got at least a little bit of something else mixed in with it yeah, I mean, we use categorization for easy communication, but essentially there is a lot of bleed between these things. <laughs> there definitely is. Um, mindset is everything. So in the same way that if you've only really got one language, you've technically only got one mindset because you don't realise how much culture and language are tied together until you learn someone else's language and then start seeing their culture through their eyes. Yeah. Um, it's like that. So... I think that is actually kind of the main problem when people take stories from a different culture and try to retell them um, without necessarily really trying to engage with that culture's mindset because, uh, okay, let's take, let's take a historical example. Mm. So, you know, I really enjoy Francis Ford Coppola's version of Dracula. It, it completely sort of ignores some of the stuff that Bram Stoker had going on in there mm -hmm. and it kind of makes Dracula a romantic hero I, I love it because it's a lush visual film but it really offended the Romanian people when it came out because to them um, it, it likened Dracula this monster with Vlad Tepish um, if you read Bram Stoker's original notes that was never the intention it mm. may have been something that his publishers then put in later on 
Um, but that wasn't what he intended at that time. Vlad Tepish was kind of mentioned as, as a, a side note to say, yes, even more vicious than this person kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the Romanians, from their perspective, was, well, he was ruling Wallachia at uh, a really difficult political time in history. And he used the methods of the time, which included expedient cruelty. So he's basically a folk hero. So it'd be kind of like if someone came and took Robin Hood or King Arthur and turned them into this monster mm. yeah so again it was like we we've we're taking an irishman's story <laughs> and we're setting part of it in romania without really understanding the romanian mindset when it comes to these sort of creatures and yeah. their, their folk hero um, and that's a relatively harmless example because yeah. they, they had the facility to be able to crit criticise it. Can you imagine taking like a West African tale and and resetting it for like a Western audience? Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, you so you see it in big cases, you know, and, and it also kind of happens in small cases. And as we've said, it's also about how do you see yourself within the world, um, you know, as someone who is just a fleeting part of something larger or you know what is the mindset and in the western we do tend to have more of a personal individual kind of mindset uh, whereas there are other parts of the world where there is a greater sense of a group kind of mindset as it were um, neither is right or wrong it's just different um, and you, um, you kind of also just see how that affects storytelling modes i mean Another one is if you tend to look at sort of like uh, Chinese Chinese storytelling and stuff like that, yeah, um, and you also see it a little bit with Japanese storytelling, is that it tends to be episodic rather than, uh, you know, so if you look at kind of books and things like that, they in Japan you have light novellas and stuff like that, and you might think, oh, that's just a modern thing, but let's have a look at... Um, if we compare the, uh, the Odyssey with uh, Journey to the West, yeah. Journey to the West is highly episodic. Um, but it's it's told as a complete narrative. So it's not like with Robin Hood, who's, you know, a legend and things where people have told sort of different stories and there have been, you know, but it tends to kind of be grouped together. It's it's not quite the same barrel of fish where it's a group of stories which have just been put together. Journey to the West is a complete narrative, but it's episodic. Um, you know, it's like we do this, we complete this, right? We then go on to the and it's the next adventure, etc. Um, that's just a very small thing, but again, I think it all ties back to kind of mindset and sort of the history of, of kind of narrative structures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, sometimes a story isn't actually bad; it's just not told in a way you can access now. I'm not saying that there aren't really bad examples of the hero's journey, which were intended to be the hero's journey, because yeah. let's get real here. Um, but sometimes you'll, t you'll encounter a story that is, has come from a completely different mindset and culture, and the reason you're not enjoying it is because you're not really plugged into that mindset and culture. And that, that's fine. Um, but you have to remember that the reverse is also true. And maybe they're like, well, Star Wars is boring, where's all the dancing kind of thing? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what's, or they're kind of, they're looking at this, they're trying to find the larger sort of narrative or basically saying we can't engage with these people because they're just selfish and that just doesn't seem to be a, yeah, you know, what's the point of the there's story? No real, there's no place, how are they affecting the place they're in, you know? Yeah, um, again, it's not about right or wrong, it's just different. Um, and so employing a little bit of critical thinking um, and seeing if you can spot when this is happening can can be actually quite good and we're not also saying that automatically now that you know about these different structures you should immediately be able to enjoy them all um frankly i know that i tend to gravitate more towards things which have the hero's journey or the heroine's journey because i tend to find those kinds of stories more satisfying that is a personal thing i recognize that um and I'm okay with that. It's simple. <laughs> that, that's it. Finish. Yeah. Conclusion. Finito. Um, <laughs> so it's absolutely okay to say, all right, well, I'm going to stick with that. And you don't, we're not saying, right, we'll go ahead and try these different structures, but maybe do have a little look at them, consider them, learn a little bit more about them and, you know, open your mind up to different mindsets. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And on that note, guys, we're going to sort of wrap things up. Uh, Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got another one for us. Yeah, this is a a short novella or a novelette, if you like that word. I don't (laughs) personally. Um, By Coyote J.M. Williams, not Williams, Edwards. Coyote J.M. Edwards called Coffee, Milk and Spider Silk. And it's sort of set in an adjunct to our mundane world where monsters sort of live in almost like an urban fantasy setting but not quite mm-hmm. and uh, basically a sort of a drider, a, a spider creature mm-hmm. who is around about 60 or so decides she wants to leave the watch, the guard and open a coffee shop and this is what we encounter her doing her going to her leaving do with her work colleagues (laughs) before she opens this coffee shop honestly it kind of follows a similar plot to legends and lattes so it's it's not like it's ripping the story off it's got different characters and things this is very much a platonic relationship platonic love between characters Mm -hmm. um and you know she employs a minotaur who's got two adorable little minotaur children. (laughs) And there's various other characters and things. And it's about, you know, the worries and struggles of getting a new business or trying something different, um, getting it off the ground. And it's just a really sweet, feel-good story that is not going to stress you out, that's low stakes, that, you know, if you've still got a Legends and Lattes itch and you can't wait for bookshops and bone dust in November, then you might enjoy reading this one. So give it a go. (laughs) That actually sounds really cosy and enjoyable. Might have to check it out. (laughs) And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.